This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Barbara Petson, founder and director of Middle East Connections, and a longtime friend and colleague. Welcome to the studio, Barbara. Thank you. It is wonderful to be back in Texas. And uh, we're going to talk about the Ottomans today. Hooray! Hooray! I know, it's one of your favorite topics. It is. Well, let me actually just start by asking the general question of why do we still talk about the Ottomans? The Ottomans have captured the imagination in a way that we do not talk about the Hohenzollerns or the Habsburgs. So what's so special about the Ottomans? Well, the Ottomans are cool. Um, I'm reminded of my daughters who love Doctor Who, who says, I wear a fez now. Fezes are cool. So the Ottomans must be cool because Doctor Who. Um, Or the Ottomans are cool because they really are a mirror for Europe. They have been, um, since their founding, Europeans have looked to the Ottomans to see what they were up against and also who they were. So in some ways, the Ottomans are very interesting historically because of the fact that they are the closest non quote-unquote European, whatever European means, empire to Europe. So in many ways, they become a reflector And they're interesting for that. But they're also interesting in and of themselves because they represent, in some ways, a culmination and a synthesis of many things that had been happening uh, in the Middle East and Islamic world. And they are on the stage at this fascinating moment when um, we talk about the world becoming something called modern. And the Ottomans bridge that uh, between 1300 and the 20th century. So they really in one uh, entity that lasts for an extraordinarily long time, encompass and give us a lens through which to look at all of these different um, trends that happen as the world changes really dramatically from what we think of as the the classical medieval period um, to the, the contemporary world. With that note, then, the Ottomans, uh, they're Turks, they're, they're Turkic, I guess I should say. How do they come on the scene? Because I know it's it's a little weird to think about, but a thousand years ago in the place we now call Turkey, there were no Turks. How did that happen? Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, I'd start off with saying the Ottomans aren't really Turks, but that's that's chapter two or three. Chapter one, how they get there, um, is in itself really interesting. Um, I remember when I was in graduate school, my advisor used to talk about a, the nomad factory in Central Asia, Acme Nomads. And every so often, you know, they would overproduce and, um, you know, you would get these Turkic nomads, uh, the Seljuks or the, you know, Timur Lenk uh, and the late Mongols, you know, moves spewing out towards the West. Um, be that as it may, we do have population pressures that aren't uh, terrifically well understood um, that are moving nomadic populations toward the West. Um, and this happens much earlier as well. So if we look at the 11th century, for example, um, we have Turks mostly outside of Anatolia to the East, and then we have the Byzantine Empire in Anatolia. And at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, um, these Turks under the Seljuks 
Seljuks come into Anatolia. They defeat the Byzantines, and that opens the floodgates, as it were, for populations to move into Anatolia. And then you get uh, the Seljuks of Rum, uh, which is a, a Seljuk split-off empire in Anatolia from Konya, and you get a variety of principalities um, growing after the Seljuks um, as their vassals and then independently um, that are looking to expand and looking to, you know, brand their own polities um, and and to grow and thrive. And the Ottomans uh, are one of those little principalities around 1300. And um, that's, that's where the Ottomans come from. They come from these Turkic migrations. But remember, they're migrating into a place that was not Turkic, right? So this is not you know, a black and white us versus them. This is a couple of centuries later um, when we have a mixing of populations over time. And what's really most interesting to me about this very early Ottoman period is just how mixed and heterodox um, things are both kind of ethnically and uh, especially religiously. So what sets this proto-Ottoman state, if you will, up. Why Why are they special? Why do they somehow manage to be the ones out of all of these principalities that take over everything? It's a great question. And I think the, the first answer is location, 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 right? They really start in a good spot, sort of sandwiched between other competing principalities uh, who are Muslim and the Byzantine rump of the Byzantine Empire, or as we like to, to say, the West, the Eastern Roman Empire um, on the other, so that they have um, a variety of different strategies that they can bring to bear of expansion in terms of their own rhetoric. They can talk about, you know, um, their own own uh, brand of being, you know, Osman and the followers of Osman, uh, this war, warlord or, you know, leader, or they can also talk in an Islamic sense of expansion versus the Christian Byzantines um, across the way. So that gives them a variety of different um, antagonists uh, against whom to expand um, and also whom they can bring into the fold when they um, are, are able to overwhelm them, right, or negotiate with them. So that gives them room in that sense. The second thing is that the uh, early Ottomans are very smart in the sense that they are willing to overlook an awful lot of kinds of difference, so that they're willing to use bands of, in some senses, mercenaries and in some senses, warriors for the faith, right? The two are not mutually exclusive at this point. So people who have very heterodox religious backgrounds, they might be sort of kind of Shia, they might be sort of kind of Sufi, they might have some shamanistic practices, some of them might be, have, in fact, local Christian practices that they've absorbed. And in this really heterodox uh, um, kind of at religious atmosphere, you know, any band that gets together and is successful militarily, you know, Osman or his followers would, would bring them on board and uh, incorporate them without looking too closely at their kind of religious affiliations. That's smart if what you're looking for is expansion by any means. And then later on, they would try and consolidate and bring those people more under control in religious terms towards orthodoxy and in military terms by kind of standardizing the, the, the hierarchy of power. So it's a mistake to think of the Ottoman state at this point as being the quote-unquote standard bearer of Islam. It was, it was really about whoever comes on board. There were Christian princes and 
and little vassal states that, that joined the, the early confederation as well. Absolutely. And I again, we draw these lines from a European perspective of who the enemy was. And so we make the Ottomans represent Islam. And I think that that confuses us on a number of fronts. One, as you say, uh, one of the best strategies for early Ottoman expansion was to um, make an alliance with um, a, a Christian um, noble of some kind, uh, who might ally with you so that he can gain territory at the expense of his rivals, who were also Christian, and then you would bring him in as a vassal, but allow him to keep his holdings, right? And then later on, you might regularize that so that he keeps his holdings, but his children would be incorporated into the administration, but they wouldn't get that holding. They might get a holding somewhere in Anatolia, so that you would not have the risk of them splitting off or changing alliances again, but it would be a permanent incorporation, right? So again, very, very clever. Um, the the next thing that might happen is that you might intermarry with Christians. So the the Ottoman Sultan might marry um, a daughter of the royal house of the Byzantines, for example, which would allow um, again territorial expansion. It would give you imperial cred. Right. Um, But it also meant that when we think of the Ottomans as Turks, again, that's a little misleading because the earliest warriors were Turks, but they very quickly begin to intermarry. And in fact, in some ways, the preferred marriages or or alliances, reproductive alliances, maybe we can say, um, were often with non-Muslim women um, who were from the Caucasus or from Georgia or from the Balkans. And so you have very often um, the, the, the next in line to the throne, the sons, uh, would be half Turk and half whatever their mothers were, but uh, originally Christian. And the same thing with the succeeding generation and so on and so on. So while it isn't true that there were never any Turkish mothers, um, it's very clearly the case that most were not born Muslim. And therefore, that's a piece of it in terms of kind of the DNA component of noble families and royal families. Um, Many of them were not born Turkish Muslims. Um, So you have, you know, a variety of ways in which and then, of course, as the the empire expands into territories that had been Christian, you have a lot of Christians who convert to Islam and become part of the system. And very often you would have what are always called in the texts. I love this term renegade Christians. They're never Uh, called renegade. Renegade Italians or, you know, renegade uh, Habsburgs. They're always renegade Christians because clearly for contemporary observers, the betrayal that smarted the most was turning on your co-religionists, not against, quote unquote, Europe, right, or the West. Um, It was your religious identity was seen as primary. But you had many, many people who would work for the Ottomans, even though they retained their Christian identity. They might eventually convert as well. So there were a lot of pathways um, where you can see that the Ottomans were not religiously exclusive, and they certainly weren't, at least in the beginning, religiously ultra-Orthodox, right? They were open to allowing a certain amount of heterodoxy. Later on, that changes. Okay, so we have we have the early Ottoman states um, that's sort of growing, expanding in Anatolia. They hop the the Dardanelles without taking Constantinople mm-hmm. and take possessions in Eastern Europe. Um, what's really the turning part? At what point do we go from talking about, say, a proto-Ottoman state to actually really starting to talk about an empire? 
I think it's it, you can look at that a little bit even before the conquest of Constantinople. But really, in some senses, with the conquest of Constantinople, um, that was for the Ottomans themselves had clearly been the golden apple um, from the beginning. And so it's with the conquest of Constantinople that the Ottomans, the Ottoman Sultan takes on the title of Caesar, um, you know, calls himself the Lord of Two Lands, you know, really... They they see themselves coming into the legacy of Rome and marrying the Roman legacy of empire with the Islamic legacy of empire. And uh, they very explicitly themselves kind of lay claim to this um, kind of multi-confessional, multi-ethnic um, um, expanse um, and see themselves as creating a new kind of empire, a new kind of synthesis. And that's where I think it kind of... Um, blooms most effusively. I think uh, the point that you just raised there is worth noting that the Byzantine state didn't refer to itself as Byzantium. It was Rome, which had been the goal of conquest, you know, since the days of the Prophet Muhammad. And not just the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, Sasanian Persia kind of wanted it as well. This is is pre-Islamic. So uh, in many ways, the Ottomans were sort of fulfilling this long-held desire to conquer Rome by both Zoroastrian and Islamic lands since, you know, time immemorial. Absolutely. And once they have Constantinople, they're still looking west and they would still like to take that other Rome, right? That first Rome um, and, you know, uh, all of the other major European centers on the way. So their sense of self was really tied in at that point with expansion and absorption of the kind of European places of pride. Um, in in European civilization, these these great cosmopolitan centers, that's what you want as an empire. Of course, the empire was built on the backs of the the peasantry, right? I mean, the Ottomans were very explicit about that. They were very clear that the sultan had a a compact with the peasants, right, that they would provide the wherewithal for the empire to continue to be strong and expand, um, and that the sultan's job was to protect them, right, to allow them to continue to grow things that would that would feed this expansionary push. So you have this kind of this idea of the circle of justice and the role of the sultan vis-a-vis the subjects. Um, but at the same time, there's this cosmopolitan ideal of self that the Ottomans have. And part of that is incorporating the other. But it's, you know, it's it's king of the mountain, right? There's, there's no point in incorporating stuff that's valueless, right? You want to get those cities that represent the best of what the other is and incorporate them into who you are. One of the things that I think about is that the Ottoman Empire was really a place of interchange, um, similar to sort of to this the story of Islamic Spain and even uh, Norman and Arab Sicily, which of course nobody talks about, is that even at the same time as the Ottomans were conquering Europe, they were also trading, interchanging. Uh, with it. I mean, Venice, for example, was, you know, certainly benefiting from the Ottoman domination of, of trade in the Eastern Mediterranean. So how did that play a role in developing this this cosmopolitan nature? You know, what kind of lives did the Ottomans live as a result of, of, of sort of sitting astride all of these trade routes? It's a, it's a great question. And I think the Ottomans were very aware of the value of their location and the value and the necessity, in fact, of making alliances with or 
opening spaces for trade um, by people who were not necessarily Muslim Turks. And in fact, Turk for the Ottomans, by the way, was the equivalent of our word hick or redneck, right? Turks were the people who lived out in the, you know, on the hills and tilled the soil and, you know, grew the, raised the sheep. Um, you know, an Ottoman was a very different uh, and much more cosmopolitan thing. Um, although for the most part, Ottoman Muslims were not uh, the, the most involved in trade, um, they recognized the need for trade. And so they created openings for other states like the Venetians or the Genoese, et cetera, to trade. Um, and they not only made it possible in terms of tax policy and encouragement, et cetera, but there was actually, you know, a very big colony of Europeans uh, engaged in trade in Constantinople. So you had the center city on the southern side of the, the Golden Horn, um, which was the seat of government, et cetera. And on the northern side of the Golden Horn, you had this, you know, walled city that was primarily made up of uh, um, traders and interests from, you know, all over the place. So it was a very, very cosmopolitan area with Genoese and Venetians and, you know, all these, um, you'd have Armenian traders and Jewish traders and Greek traders. So you had this huge ethnic mix that allowed for, I mean, it was very smart in a sense because they didn't have a single trading partner that they invited in. They had many trading partners who, of course, were all in some sense in competition with one another. And the Ottoman, their economic ethos was one of provisionism. That is that for them, the most important thing was to make sure that the city in particular was fed, was supplied. So they weren't thinking about balance of trade. They were thinking about keep the population satisfied so that they don't revolt. Um, and because that was the role of the sultan, right? Goes back to that circle of justice. We provide security to the population and the wherewithal that they need to get on with their lives. So for the Ottomans, it was it was was really a win-win. Both you could tax this trade and you kept the population in Istanbul happy and um, content with all the goods that were on offer in the bazaar. And one of the populations in Istanbul that had to be kept the happiest was the Janissaries. Can we talk a bit about the Janissaries, who they were, and why they were so special? Uh, it's, the Janissaries are such an interesting story because it's a story that changes over time. I mean, our image of the Janissaries is typically the Janissaries at the height of their military power. So in the early um, centuries of the Ottoman Empire, the Janissaries were really a formidable fighting force. And they were formidable because um, the Ottomans had perfected this institution of the slave soldier, um, which is a way of making sure that you don't have soldiers who will become attached to a um, provincial governor, for example, and eventually want to break away and create their own state. So you make them loyal to the central government by cutting all of their ties to their own communities and making them loyal only to you. Well, the Ottomans did this um, in two ways. The first is that they did not recruit from their own local Muslim population. They recruited from towns mostly at the periphery or in the Balkans that were primarily Christian. So despite the fact that it's illegal in Islam to forcibly convert people to Islam, that's effectively what they did. They got special dispensation to do that. And they took uh, young men of extraordinary promise from these communities. Now, this is a huge nationalistic issue now, so that the populations now see this as an enormous oppressive yoke around the, the Greek population or the Bulgarian population, etc. And of course, I'm sure there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth 
when these boys were conscripted. But at the same time, they then had opened to them a pathway to uh, success and rising up that uh, most Muslim Turks would not have had in the Ottoman Empire. They were converted to Islam. They were farmed out to farming communities so that they would learn Turkish and how to be a Muslim. And then they were brought back to Constantinople and um, depending on their skills, either trained as soldiers or trained in the palace school to become administrators of the empire. So that, for example, Sinan, the great architect of the Ottoman Empire, was born a Christian and recruited through the Devshirme, right? So this Devshirme system of recruitment populates the Janissary Corps. They're trained altogether. They're housed in barracks altogether. They're not supposed to get married so that they don't have the outside concerns of a family. And in the early years, this becomes an incredibly cohesive, well-trained fighting force that is the scourge of Europe. Everyone is terrified of them. Now, like all institutions, you can't keep an institution intact forever. And over time, the rules that require Janissaries not to marry, and if they do marry, not to enroll their sons in the Janissary Corps, that all begins to fall apart. And so you end up with a Janissary Corps that is deeply embedded in the kind of mercantile fabric of Constantinople, and in fact, of other cities as well. And that means that when their interests are threatened, not just as soldiers, but as participants in the city's economy in one way or another, whether it's because their salaries aren't being paid on time, or whether it's because the economic policies of the Sultan will keep them from getting the kinds of goods or the kinds of access that they want in town, um, they can become a very important street fighting force. So you have actual violence, but they also become a political faction. And that becomes really important because you have a variety of factions that arise and they end up becoming the kingmakers or the sultan makers when a sultan dies. And when you have this struggle over who will become the next sultan, the Janissaries become a faction that's very important in helping to see who comes out on top. Well, that's all that time we have for this first installment of our podcast on Ottoman history with Barbara Petson. Stick around for part two. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.